I'd been knocking on the door of consciousness in altered state through my life. That's Amanda Fielding. And then suddenly I found this technique. One can actually control the consciousness state. Amanda is 80 years old, and she spent much of her life pondering the human mind. She occupies a rare seat in the world. Her official title is the Countess of Weems and March. She's a descendant of King Charles II. But her reputation has long surpassed her heritage. Today, she's a leading figure in drug policy reform and research, or better known as queen of the psychedelic renaissance. Our producer Hamza traveled to the headquarters of Amanda's Research Foundation at Beckley Park in Oxfordshire, England. Her base is a three-towered Tudor hunting lodge replete with moats and topiaried gardens. It's like life. It was incredibly beautiful on the edge of a moor in an old Tudor or medieval fortress. The grounds, the castle, the place continues to feel out of time. Oh no, we lost them. I'm speaking to Amanda over the computer, but the Wi-Fi isn't great in this castle, and I keep losing sight of her. When she does come into view, I see her seated in a large room with stone walls that seem intent on absorbing her already quiet voice. She's wearing a trim green cardigan over a crisp white shirt. I would say she looks conservative, were it not for the perpetual curl to her mouth. Whether talking or poised to listen, her face retains a mischievous smile. It's like she knows something. She's figured it out and is just indulging the rest of us. I do think psychedelics are the most amazing tools for us humans. Officially, she's not a scientist or a scholar, but a woman who has spent decades at the fringes of law and public opinion. How does that? individual, my case female, uh, without letters after my name, change global drug policy and open the doors to psychedelic research. Amanda persevered through mockery, taboo, censorship. Most of us would have probably thrown in the towel, but Amanda is not most people. How do we kind of live slightly dreaming of adventure of the future? When she was just a teenager, she left England with 25 pounds in her pocket in the ambition to travel to Ceylon, present-day Sri Lanka. And so I kind of dreamt of having a mission of, in some way, saving the world or doing something good in the world. As Amanda tells the story, she never made it that far. She was taken in by a Bedouin tribe and spent months living in their nomadic camps in the Syrian desert. I thought it was originally, I decided it was watering the desert. So then at 16, I realized, my goodness me, it's a big task to water the desert, and maybe it's not that. So she returned to London to study mysticism and comparative religion. At 16, she tried cannabis and had a beautiful time while listening to Ray Charles. And then at 22, this was the early 1960s, she was introduced to LSD. Dosed, her personal search and her academic intrigues united. She was able to achieve the mystical state that had fascinated her. 
I realized I had a kind of aha moment. That's my mission. You know, the desert is the human brain. Amanda decided she was going to water the desert of the human mind. I'm Catherine Rowland, and this is Seeking. Psychedelics have soared, fallen from grace, and been discovered anew. Now they're the latest darlings of psychiatry, in large part thanks to Amanda Fielding. Today we look at what her perseverance has made possible. A world where scientists are asking questions like this. Were you outside of time? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I've had, on one occasion, what you could call a mystical experience. This was before my interest in psychedelics. It occurred years ago, in a moment of total sobriety. I was with a group of people in a big tent outdoors in midsummer. A healer, this gray-haired man, sat in the center, on the floor like the rest of us. And he asked what our lives might have been like if we had retained the wonder of our newborn state. Before we realized there were boundaries or doubts or needs that might go unmet. And for whatever reason, this question acted on my mind in such a way that I was lifted up out of the tent and sent soaring to a place of pure sound and color. I was bodiless, timeless, totally at peace. All that existed was the staggering fact of love. I returned to the tent when I was alerted to the sound of someone sobbing. Oh, no, I thought. If I could just let them know that there is only love. But then slowly, as I felt the ground harden beneath me, I realized that the sobbing was coming from my own mouth. Revelations, by their very nature, are not lasting. And part of me has been chasing that transcendent moment ever since. The two experiences that have brought me closest are psychedelics and trauma. Both can remake your mind. Trauma might impose on the stories of our lives, but psychedelics can help us to rewrite them. Amanda recognized this, and what she felt intuitively is now scientifically stamped and certified. Not long after that first trip, Amanda was back in London, and there, at a party, she met a man named Bart Hughes. At the time, Amanda was a heavy smoker. And so then I met this Dutch scientist. He said how horrible my smoking habit was. So I decided on an LSD trip and decide to give it up. So that's what I did, and I never smoked again. Amanda calls Hughes a scientist, but he went to school for medicine and never received his degree. Hughes, in an old interview, says it was because he failed his exams. Other accounts hold that it was because of his advocacy for LSD and marijuana. He named his daughter Maria Juana. 
Amanda fell in love with Hughes. They were kindred spirits, interested in plunging into the psyche and exploring wild theories. He had this hypothesis about increasing the, the blood in the capillaries. And so I, I had a kind of very exciting period. Hughes had this theory that LSD could increase brain blood volume, and this was what accounted for expanded consciousness. The theory is not borne out. But Hughes and Amanda were more than willing to experiment on themselves. And what resulted, as Amanda puts it, was essentially years of living on LSD. We actually took LSD to improve our cognition, and it was a great adventure, finding out better how we work and how it could be beneficial. And and at that time, one didn't have brain imaging, so it was more just thinking theoretically about it. Amanda's routine sounds like she spent her days stalking the outer reaches of sanity. But today, we'd probably call it microdosing. She was taking low levels of LSD so that she was stimulated, but never out of control. She was cruising at what she thought was an optimal state. But not all of Amanda's experiments are as comprehensible in hindsight. Bart Hughes was also convinced that trepanation— the ancient practice of drilling a hole in one's head, increased blood flow to the brain and, like LSD, made the mind more luminous. He had bored a third eye into his forehead the year before he met Amanda, and she was enthralled by this. In 1970, Amanda trepanned herself using an electric dentist drill. She made a film of the operation, a heartbeat in the brain. According to Amanda, afterwards, she ate a steak to replace the iron lost in the messy procedure, wrapped her head in a scarf, and went to a party. She says it was not deleterious in the least. But Amanda wasn't only in pursuit of her own enlightenment. Her gaze was always ranging without as much as within, and she had broader ambitions. In 1979 and again in 1983, she ran for parliament in her local constituency of Chelsea on a single-issue platform, Trepanation for National Health. She campaigned to make trepanation freely available through the National Health Service. She actually drilled a hole in her own head with a dentist's drill. She's known as hole-in-the-head fielding. Jokes at Amanda's expense were easy. The countess with a hole in her head, the eccentric who subsisted on LSD. Making matters worse, psychedelics had taken a nosedive in the public opinion. For a brief window in the mid-20th century, psychedelics were poised to be the next big thing in psychiatry. Researchers published more than a thousand scientific studies describing the promise of psychedelic treatments for 40,000 men and women for conditions ranging from depression and alcoholism to psychosis. But the war on drugs abruptly put a stop to that. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. Popular sentiment turned sharply. LSD was not the future of psychiatric care. It was a public menace. Medical research screeched to a halt, and the work done up until that point faded into the background. It's held us up 
doing scientific research and using these compounds intelligently. And instead of that, he's created a vast unhappiness in prison population. I mean, just, it's kind of a perfect example of the madness of humanity. We can be brilliant, but we can be completely mad. The consequences of continuing to work in psychedelic research were steep. While a small body of scientists and ethnobotanists soldiered on, their work was marginalized. We were quite a foolish animal, and there we took the wrong turning and wasted 70 years. Amanda was undeterred. As the war on drugs ground on, she was making calls, knocking on doors, trying to get the people in power to take her seriously to little avail. Then, in the 90s, she came to a realization. She needed to present her work in a language the world could understand. I set up the Beckley Foundation to do brain imaging because I realized the way to demonstrate the potential benefit of these compounds is, in a way, show it pictorially, show it by science, because science is a new religion. So you play the game that they are playing. And the game is science. An institute carries far more authority than an individual. Amanda established the Beckley Foundation in 1998 to advocate for evidence-based drug policies and to lead scientific research into psychoactive substances. She threw herself into fundraising and outreach and was able to get respected scientists and scholars on board. This was an unprecedented achievement in a landscape that for so long had been hostile to psychedelics. Hold out for long enough and the rains will come. The foundation has since pushed ahead with groundbreaking papers and partnerships with major institutions. A brief overview of their achievements. The world's first brain imaging study of LSD, clinical trial on psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, talks at the House of Lords. My favorite, though, is what Amanda mentioned in passing as an idea in the works. Microdosing in nursing homes. Now I feel we're back to where we were in 1966. And hopefully we can slowly build on stronger ground using the very best science to demonstrate why and how these compounds can be of great value. As we conclude our conversation, Amanda's face radiates hope. It's evening now in England, but she's off to another meeting. And we're here, walking across her blooming desert. Her vision for healing has shaped the world we find ourselves in today. I think I'm probably one of the only people in the world who can actually say legally on the record that I've had MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, and DMT, because I've been a research subject in all of those studies. That's after the break. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. These drugs were not considered controversial. They were going to be mainstream psychiatry. But then, of course, it all collapsed in the wake of the cultural revolution of the 60s. That's Dr. Ben Sessa. He started his career in psychiatry in the late 1990s, just as Amanda was setting up the Beckley Foundation they would come to be involved in some of the same research. It was Amanda's chief scientific collaborator, neuropsychopharmacologist David Nutt, who dosed Ben in a lab for the first time. I was both a research subject and one of the um, co-authors on the first paper. Indeed, I think I was the first person to be legally administered a psychedelic drug since the 60s when I was injected with intravenous psilocybin. While Amanda tirelessly advocated for research and drug reform, Ben was in the lab and in the clinic, investigating the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. His work helped give scientific credibility to ideas Amanda had long held. Psychedelics could be an integral part of psychiatric care. He didn't start out in this field. Initially, Ben specialized in child and adolescent mental health and worked with young people who had suffered abuse or maltreatment. But several years in, he came to a realization. Seeing people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s with heroin and alcohol addictions, etc., they are essentially the same grown-up cohort of those little abused kids I would work with when they were in their childhood and teenage years. Ben saw that the standard treatments weren't working. They weren't getting at the root of suffering. Whether it's depression, anxiety, PTSD, addictions, eating disorders, in some ways it doesn't really matter. The, the end diagnosis is a kind of red herring. You're kind of missing the wood for the trees. Ben is convinced that at the core of all these illnesses, there's trauma. It goes way back to the messages we received as children. When we grow up believing we're lovable and capable, we carry that into adulthood. But when we grow up feeling the world is a hostile place, that stays with you. I can't really just turn to my patients and say, do you know what? You're wrong about yourself and the world. You're actually a great person and you're smart and clever and you can achieve and the world is full of safe, happy people who will help you. Um, They're not going to believe me. Ben says that drugs like antidepressants just paper over the cracks. So that's really where psychedelics come in. The way MDMA works, the way psilocybin and LSD work, the way ketamine works, they all work on different receptors and they all have different biological effects in the brain. But what they all do similarly is they all open this window of opportunity. You're shaking the snow globe. You're disrupting 
the fixed and solid narratives that have kept you stuck where you are. Here are these powerful substances, reviled for so long, finally making their way back into mainstream science and mental health care. For practitioners like Ben, psychedelics, when properly administered, are safe and effective medical treatments. They can help to relieve the suffering that modern pills have failed to fix. But experts like Ben and Amanda know that psychedelics are more than medicines. They are also tools for shining a light into the nature of consciousness itself. And this is where things start to get a little weird. Consciousness might be spontaneous electrical activity in the brain, but it's also where people talk to God. And science as a field struggles to make sense of this. But to indigenous healers working with psychedelic plant medicines, it's obvious. I definitely, especially throughout my 20s, I probably still now to a certain degree, was somebody who enjoyed quite extreme experiences or enjoyed enjoyed seeing what, what life had to offer. This is Simon Raffel. Like Amanda, he's always been called to the edge. Desire, drive, and grasping to say yes to everything, to have all these crazy experiences. And like Ben, he's always wanted to understand the workings of the human mind. I am a medical doctor, I'm a psychiatrist. Simon is 33, but has a boyish, bounding puppy energy to him. His eyes are big beneath a mop of curls, and his resting face is one of open-mouthed anticipation. Like, whatever's coming next, it's going to be thrilling. I also have a PhD in Amazonian ayahuasca and mental health outcomes. Yes, a PhD in psychedelics. It's a whole new world. I'm talking with Simon in an air-conditioned hotel room in Iquitos, Peru. He's wearing shorts and beat-up boots. He's just returned from the jungle. Simon stands on the shoulders of experts like Ben and Amanda. He's of a new generation working to bridge the gap between shamans and scientists, the jungle and the clinic. But none of this is what he had planned. Simon went into psychiatry because he wanted to help people with severe mental illness, but he quickly became discouraged. People come back so much in psychiatry, there's even a term for it, we call it the revolving door syndrome. To Simon, it became apparent early in his career that the tools at his disposal weren't cutting it. A lot of the treatments that we have are the same ones that we've been using for, you know, over 50 years. And that's completely different to the rest of medicine. Like, that would never happen in oncology. Like, in oncology, they have, like, new treatments all the time. And in psychiatry, that seems to be less of the case. And so that was something that was weighing heavily on my mind and on, you know, on the minds of many other psychiatrists. There must be a better way. Like, there must be a better way, surely. Simon's growing doubts carried him far away from London's hospitals. He went to Uganda to work with child soldiers. He traveled to Central America. And one day, a chance encounter set his life on a totally different course. And I found myself in a cafe in Guatemala next to Lake Atacan, which is this super beautiful lake. And there was nobody else in this cafe apart from this one guy who was sitting on another table. 
And I kind of looked over it and I was like, he looks like a really interesting guy. And I felt like this overwhelming desire to speak to this guy. And then I had this kind of battle in my own mind of, um, but he'll totally think it's weird. Like you have no reason to speak to him. And he's like quite far away on the other side of this cafe. And then I was like, well, you know, I'm never going to see him again. There's nothing to lose. I'm just going to just start speaking to him. So I just kind of like called over across this cafe and was like, hey, um, what are you what are you doing? Because I could see him like with this stick and he was like skinning it. And he was like, I'm skinning a stick. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, why, why are you why are you skinning a stick? I was like, oh, I'm skinning it because I'm, I'm making a medicine. And I was like, oh, there we are. There's an end. I was like, oh, you, you study medicine. I study medicine. And so I went over and started speaking to him. It turns out that this person was a facilitator working at a retreat center in Peru called the Ayahuasca Foundation. This would lead Simon to ask questions his scientific training had not prepared him for. Did you experience um, being in the presence of God? That's after the break. After decades of neglect, the current pace of psychedelic inquiry is surging. In the blink of an eye, isolated efforts like Amanda's brain imaging study have spun out into research taking place from America to Australia. Anxiety, Alzheimer's, anorexia, phantom limb pain, migraines, substance abuse, PTSD, all are being treated with psychedelic compounds. And in the process, Researchers are wrestling with questions that have historically been way outside the domain of science. When we left Simon, he was drawn to this man whittling a stick at a cafe in Guatemala. He started telling me all about his work with plants and with ayahuasca and telling me these amazing stories that I was completely intrigued by and slightly skeptical of, of the healing power of ayahuasca and plants, treating many of the conditions that I've been really struggling to treat back at home in the psychiatric hospitals. Intrigue won out over skepticism, and Simon, ever the adventurer, ended up staying with this man in Guatemala for the next several weeks, and then traveling to the Ayahuasca Foundation in the jungle outside of Iquitos, Peru. There, he participated in a retreat with a Shipibo healer, a curandero named Don Rono. I was pretty nervous, and I thought that I was going to get a real telling off for living a reasonably, I don't know, how can I phrase this, fun-filled life in my 20s. And my first ceremony was super reassuring. It was like, don't worry, you're okay. This makes sense to me. The first time I drank ayahuasca, I was terrified the universe would confirm my worst thoughts about myself. Like some omnipotent confessor was going to rip me apart for all my failings, big and small. So Simon thinks he's going to get a telling off from the medicine. It's like, don't worry, no, you're okay. You've made some mistakes or whatever, but like, you're good. And it's such a cliche, you know, this is always said by everyone in every interview about ayahuasca and every documentary, but it did genuinely feel like going through five, ten years of therapy in, in one night. In Peru, Simon talked to the founder of the Ayahuasca Foundation, a man named Carlos Tanner, who we'll meet later this season. Carlos, as luck would have it, was in the process of building a research center. He was just like, oh, well, the only issue is, is that we don't really have any doctors or researchers. We just like really need some like, yeah, psychiatrists or some doctors to just come and do some research. And 
obviously that planted the seed in my mind um, that, oh, wait, maybe that could be me. That, that sounds great. Simon started researching the effects of ayahuasca on personality. And now he is part of a world rich in psychedelic discovery. And a lot of the results coming out are impressive. But these successes lead us into a real quandary. Here's Ben Sessa again. You kind of have to target it towards a disease. You can't really set up a trial that just says we're going to give somebody this medicine and see what happens. You have to say we're going to do this on people with depression or people with anxiety or people with PTSD. So you kind of have to pigeonhole people into these diagnostic categories in order to carry out research. The value of psychedelics may lie in their ability to reach beyond our diagnostic categories. But that's not how our medical models are set up. It's not the case that one psychedelic acts on depression and another is effective in treating anxiety. In our studies, we've been looking at anxiety, depression, you know, self-compassion, general well-being, levels of neuroticism. How could a treatment treat all of those things at once? I think that the root cause for a lot of conditions could be perceived as trauma. And maybe that trauma leads to this sense of disconnection or this sense of alienation. And this is particularly interesting because research into psychedelics and research into ayahuasca, it seems to be transdiagnostic. The idea of treating all of these ailments represents a break in conventional medicine. But Simon has theories that go further. One line of his research looks at whether ayahuasca might have epigenetic effects. We all understand genetics to be our biological inheritance. We get half of our chromosomes from our mothers, the other half from our fathers, and that makes up our DNA. Epigenetics looks at how environmental factors like nutrition or air quality can change the way genes get expressed without altering the DNA itself. And some researchers have been investigating whether stress or trauma might have an epigenetic effect. This line of work is relatively new and somewhat controversial, but it suggests that our darkest human moments can leave a chemical mark on our genes that shows up from one generation to the next. In Simon's case, research is very preliminary but it hinges on the question of whether psychedelics could interrupt that transfer of trauma. It's radical on many levels to the scientific community, but to a shaman like his curandero Don Rono? So when I was speaking to Don Rono um, about epigenetics and explaining uh, what epigenetics is um, and using examples uh, like um, in the Holocaust um, when people went through these awful traumas, certain genes related to trauma uh, were either cranked up or cranked down. Um, yeah, it sort of makes you think that you could be affecting the lives of your grandchildren um, depending on the way that you live your life now. And when I explained this to, to Don Rono um, and why I thought looking at epigenetics was, uh, was important and exciting, he, was, he just replied saying, oh, of course, like cleaning familial lines. To the shaman, it's crystal clear. But Simon is studying things hard to relay to his Western colleagues. This is something that's been on my mind quite a lot, actually, is, you know, what gets lost in scientific research and... I find this myself when I when I stand up and and you know give presentations. I just think of the the Kurunderos in the jungle. If they could see me giving those talks, they'd be they'd be killing themselves laughing. 
What Simon and his team gleaned is that ayahuasca does lead to overall improvements in well-being. Depressive symptoms lessen, negative memories lose their grip. But it's not just ingesting the psychoactive compound that's doing this. It's the trip. It's the mystical experience. The degree that people have undergone a mystical experience seems to pretty reliably be correlated with any changes that people have in in their mental health outcomes. And so that's led people to to think that that's the the underlying mechanism. That could be for a variety of reasons. I think of it um, as this ability to have a different perspective on life, to see things, um, to look outside the box and to really change your mind on things. But try turning that into a data point. So in a lot of these questionnaires, um, you're looking for things like, did you experience being in the presence of God? Were you outside of time? Did you have a sense of oceanic boundlessness? I think this is probably the same mechanism as, you know, astronauts quite often describe this when they first go into space and then they look back at the Earth and they suddenly realize this is pointless, like all of these like disagreements and arguments we have, you know, that we're all one planet and they have this, this change in their sense of awareness. When I give talks, I stand there with some graphs and I show depression is decreasing in the short term and at six months and anxiety is also doing the same. And it's not disingenuous because like that definitely did happen, but there's just so much more that's going on there. Therapeutic mysticism, quantifying the ineffable, patients healing themselves with visions. All of this is really different from your daily pill. But from my perspective, maybe just what we need. Meanwhile, this awkward marriage between spirit and science has a third party. One we haven't discussed yet, and one that definitely complicates matters. Big Pharma. Psychedelics are too good to be kept to the very small number of recreational users that use them. They do have general clinical value. And in order to increase accessibility to more patients, we just have to develop an industry because that's how drug development and healthcare systems work. What does a shroom-loving, biotech-investing, psychedelic art-collecting billionaire think the future looks like? That's next week. Seeking is written and reported by me, Catherine Rowland. Our producers are Hamza Umerji, Rob Dozier, and Lily Thompson. Editing by Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Our executive producers are Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing by Sam Baer. Thanks to our legal team, Rachel Goldberg and Allison Sherry. Special thanks to Tom Koenig and Steve Ackerman. 